In the 1950s, spy agencies like the CIA paid artists, writers, and intellectuals to fight the cultural Cold War. Not All Propaganda is Art is a new miniseries from me, Benjamin Walker, host of the Theory of Everything podcast. It's a story about three writers who got caught up in the cultural Cold War, both as collaborators and as targets. It's also a story about the propaganda that made the world we live in today. Find Not All Propaganda is Art on the Theory of Everything feed wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Tom Wright, and this is the Whale Hunting Podcast, where we shine a light onto the hidden worlds of money and power. This week, we have something a little bit different to share with you, but it's an issue very close to our hearts at Whale Hunting. Back in March 2023, Evan Gerskovich, a Russia correspondent at the Wall Street Journal, was arrested while on a reporting assignment in Yekaterinburg. The next day, he was charged with spying for the US government and sent to Moscow's infamous Lefortovo prison, where he remains today more than nine months later. Suffice to say, Evan is not a spy. He's a reporter, and a talented one at that. The US government says it's fighting to get him home, but so far, its offers for a prisoner swap have been turned down by Moscow. Securing Evan's release is likely to be a long process. Back in May, just a few weeks after Evan's arrest, Brazen reporter Neha Wadika spoke with some of his friends, colleagues, and mentors, who, along with his family and other loved ones, are petitioning for him to be released. This is Evan's story in their words. We chatted, just texted messages. Then he went offline and then I got a call from his dad, you know, saying, have I heard from Evan tonight? His phone turned off at right about the time he was going to meet with a source and then few hours after that, he missed a scheduled call-in with our security folks. I got a call from Emma Tucker, who was the editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal, and she said that Evan had missed a couple of check-ins and that we were very worried about his situation and could we um, start alerting the U.S. government. I was flipping through Twitter and saw that some American had been detained. And then as I flipped through it, I got to Evan's name and, and said, shit. I picked up my phone and I saw a bunch of like notifications and texts and I was like, oh, Evan texted me, that's amazing. I haven't talked to him in so long. And then I put my glasses on and saw that, no, in fact, Evan hadn't texted me, the Guardian had sent me a push alert with his name in it. And I just like collapsed. For the first time in nearly 40 years, Russian authorities have arrested an American journalist and charged him with espionage. Evan Gershkovich of the Wall Street Journal was detained by intelligence agents yesterday while reporting in central Russia. It's an escalation of a- Yeah, I was in my living room and then I hear 
I heard Bowden. Graduated from Bowden College. He wrote for the school newspaper. He was a member of the men's soccer team. Here's a photo of a Zoom interview. And there's a picture of someone on the screen. And then I realized it was Evan. And I started just yelling, no, 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 at the screen. Gershkovich's last report from Moscow, published just this week, was titled, Russia's economy is starting to come undone. Evan was just very interested in finding out where he came from, where his family came from, everything about Russia. There was nothing that wasn't interesting to him. I'm Michelle Birdie, and I am a columnist and the arts editor for the Moscow Times. When he came to Moscow, he first worked for the Moscow Times as a reporter. His parents were the emigres. He felt very comfortable in the culture. He didn't feel like a foreigner. He was somebody who was curious about how things are going, what's happening, why are people doing what they're doing. You could send him anywhere and he would go and he would enjoy himself while he was working on a story. He always wants to talk to you, always asks you questions, always has a genuine interest in how you're doing. My name is Pyotr Sauer. I'm the Russia correspondent for The Guardian. And I met Evan in 2018, where we were both working at the Moscow Times. It was my first day on the job. I walked into the office and Evan greeted me with this massive smile. And from day one, he really took me under his wing and, and really showed me the ropes. You know, I, I wouldn't be where I am today as a journalist if it wasn't for him. You can interview senior politicians and oligarchs, and then the next day you can interview, um, you know, struggling artists uh, or opposition leaders. That's something I, I learned from him early on is just, you know, to be as curious as possible and try to ask as many questions. We talked a lot about his parents. We shared a lot and he had this very Soviet uh, bringing up uh, in a way because, you know, they moved from Soviet Union. One of his closest friends, he would say, uh, well, you know, most of us grew up in the 90s watching like uh, Hey Arnold on Nickelodeon. But Evan was watching this like, Russian cartoon, like religiously, and he'd share this cartoon with these guys. He was bringing something from somewhere else, you know, which isn't uncommon for many students at Princeton High School. My name is Wayne Sutcliffe, and I am the head varsity boys soccer coach at Princeton High School. It's hard to describe how exciting it was and rewarding to be Evan's coach from 2006 to 2009 when he was a senior. I mean, soccer is a big deal at Princeton High School. He made the team as a freshman and just a diehard soccer player and fanatic to, you know, which he still is today. We didn't lose a lot of games during his days, but you know, we just couldn't get to the top in the state until he was a senior. It was like a storybook by the end of it. I'll never forget the last minute of the game. Evan winds up in the, in the left side corner and he just side volleyed that ball out 40 or 50 yards. We get it down to our front third and did what we needed to do. And we won the state championship. 
I mean, I can't tell you what that's like. The celebration, everything, the media are there, 3,000 people at the game. Evan's the captain of the team. He's holding the trophy and the boys are parading around. It was like a mosh pit. They're jumping into the fans. We lived in the same um, college house. It was this like really wonderful little corner of madness usually <laughs> in the best sense. But we were both like right above where one of the main party rooms was. So sometimes we wouldn't be able to go to bed early. So we would be some of the last ones um, hanging out in the house. My name is Nora Biet Timmons. I am the deputy editor of the website Jezebel, and I am also a good friend of Evans from college. Bowdoin is a really small college, and um, you just kind of know people. If Evan wasn't busy with like work or academic work, he was socializing. He's like one of the most gregarious, talkative people ever. Like half the time I would see him and he'd be talking with someone I'd never met, whether it was like a professor or student. We had been in a, a short fiction class together senior year. And I just had kind of was like thinking about like walking into class together and like reading his short fiction as, you know, which as a 22 year old is like a very intimate thing. And they were often, there were stories about, you know, failed love. There were stories about difficult families. Uh, they were good stories. My name is Brock Clark, and I teach creative writing and English at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. I first met Evan. He took my introductory fiction workshop. That's a class of like maybe 14 students. Most of them don't have any experience in writing at all. The way people get better is that they have a good sense of humor about what they're bad at, and they learn from those things rather than putting up a wall. And Evan was especially good at that. He was really interested in learning how he wasn't doing something well and how he might do it better. Um, he's such a great journalist. And some of the things that make him a great journalist were evident in his fiction writing, his eye for detail, his ear for dialogue, his interest in how people's lives work and what people are afraid of and what, they're, uh, what their hopes are. He would go to these villages and, and just talk to humans uh, to just talk about their views on the war or, you know, how they support the war because um, even though their son is, is at risk of dying, you know, on the front. He was able to take this you know, giant concept that we, that we all are reading a million stories on and actually put many faces on it. You know, I, I read a fair amount about the war and really didn't see much else like that. I'm Elliot Brown. I, for the past year, have worked out of the Wall Street Journal's uh, London Bureau, and I cover finance here. What makes a good reporter is obviously like a, a, a sort of magic stew, and it's hard to really know what the secret sauce is, but he, he sort of has a lot of knowledge of history. And then he is just a gregarious chatterbox. I mean, he he's a real chatty Cathy, but, but he has a fun smile on him and makes you feel heard. He set off and spent some years at the Moscow Times and then at AFP, and then he switched to the journal not very long before the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine in February of last year. I'm Gordon Fairclough. I'm the Wall Street Journal's world coverage chief, and I'm based in London. There was a, a delay in the processing of his accreditation, so it would have been uh, illegal for him to work in Russia. So we uh, flew him out to London so that he could start working while waiting for his Russian paperwork to come through. 
and he was expecting to go back to Russia, and then war breaks out. And so suddenly he's living out of a corporate apartment, not sure if he's ever going <laughs> to be able to go back to his apartment in Moscow and um, you know, doing three million things at once for the entire newsroom because there's only so many Russian speakers. This is by far the biggest story we've you know, had in, in sort of news world in, in a long time. And he's one of uh, three people in our Moscow bureau, so sort of new to the journal, <laughs> new to war and suddenly has one of the most important jobs of the paper. And then by the summer, I think things had sort of normalized enough that this was the new normal, and he and a few outlets from the Western press tiptoed back. It's incredible what he did in just a year working for us. I mean, he wrote this incredible inside account of Putin and his inner circle and Putin's style of governance, and that opens with a commanding officer in eastern Ukraine getting a call on the encrypted line from Moscow, and it turns out that it's Putin himself uh, ordering this officer not to retreat. He was also was just an ingenious reporter. To my knowledge, the only Western correspondent who made it to the border of Belarus and Ukraine early in the conflict and was the first to see and report on a really massive stream of Russian casualties coming back out across the border. And those were in the days of the war where we really did not have a very good grasp on what was going on. Um, I think that really gave him a determination that Russian voices from inside wartime Russia were important for folks in the United States and the rest of the West to hear. Generally, I, I think he, he felt energized by these trips and, and liked going back. But, but you know, um, I mean, on one of the last trips he did, he was reporting from near the front in Russia to go to some of the towns that, that you know, had a lot of um, military personnel. And all he said was he is eager to get out of here for a bit, um, which was uncharacteristic for him. Uh, just got back from a trip to the place where... Um, you know, folks from Bucha were, and he said grim stuff. I think he was talking to gravediggers, I think. He also found it depressing to go back in the sense that basically all his friends have left. He and I talked about risk related to Ukraine, and I was often, you know, in a term he'd like kvetching about you know, the risk that journalists are taking by, by sending people to the front line in Ukraine. And he, he called me the Jewish mother of the newsroom. He was not naive about the risks of war reporting and the importance of it. I do take some solace in that, that he's a smart guy. He, he wasn't doing this just for the thrill. The family of Evan Gershevich is speaking out in an exclusive interview with The Wall Street Journal. Senior video producer for The Wall Street Journal, Shelby Holliday, spoke to Gershkovich's parents about his detention. Did you ever talk to him about what could happen uh, as a journalist in Russia? Uh, no, uh, but I trusted him. I trusted his judgment. Of course, it makes things more difficult for me now because I, I feel, feel that I've failed in some way as a father. It's one of the American qualities that we absorbed. Be optimistic, believe in happy, happy ending. That's uh, where we stand right now. But I am not stupid. I understand what's involved, but that's what I choose to believe. We saw him being brought into Lefortovo, uh, which is a, a prison in Moscow. 
and uh, was brought before a judge. There was a um, kind of independent human rights lawyer who was at the courthouse uh, who sought to represent Evan. Uh, that lawyer was denied entry to the courtroom and Evan was ordered held in jail pending investigation until the end of May. Um, you can ask for bail. And, and if your bail is denied, you can appeal that decision. So we appealed the decision to deny him bail. Uh, that was heard by the Moscow City Court. American journalist Evan Gershkovich, seen publicly today for the first time since his arrest in late March. Appearing stoic in a plaid shirt and jeans, his arms crossed, standing in a glass enclosure, as a Russian court denied... The first photo of him in this Russian courtroom in a glass box, um, smiling at uh, yeah, presumably some reporters he knows as they, they, they took photos of him. But that was hard. The, the photos from the courtroom were really, really tough. And because there's a screen in between you, it's kind of unnerving. You feel like detached from the thing you're feeling. You know, every time I see his face, I just get this feeling on, on a screen. I got this feeling of horror. They denied the bail request and uh, ordered him to continue serving his time in, uh, in Lefortovo prison. Near the center of Moscow, the walls of notorious Lefortovo imprisoned some of Russia's worst criminals and the Kremlin's bitterest critics. And now US reporter Evan Gershkovich too, locked away here last month on charges of espionage he denies. We uh, obviously try to communicate with him through the attorneys. You can send him letters. Everyone can send him letters, though it's quite a process. The letters need to be translated into Russian so that they can be read and censored by the Russian prison authorities. A group of Evan's friends have set up a sort of portal to get letters to Evan. There's a lot of energy. Earlier this week, we got the friends who were translating the emails said that I think it was 730 different people had written to him. I know other people are writing him every day, especially with like Met scores and Arsenal updates. Those seem to be the two big things he's asked for. <laughs> we get him um, books he's asking, the new David Grant book uh, signed by uh, Mr. Grant, which is really nice of him. So he knows what's going on in the world. He knows that the world cares. But it is obviously not always clear whether your letter will reach Evan or not, because it, it is up to the prison censor to decide whether the letter is uh, uh, innocent or, or not. My name is Gulnoza Said. I work with the Committee to Protect Journalists. I head CPJ's work on Europe and Central Asia. We have practically no independent media outlets left in Russia. There are still independent journalists collaborating with exiled media outlets, uh, still trying to continue reporting. They're very brave people because they know what the risks are, especially if they report on the war. Anybody who has anti-war views, anti-Kremlin views is at risk of lengthy prison term in Russia. Uh, so we are seeing the media blackout in Russia that is 
the worst since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Just yesterday, President Biden spoke with his family after the State Department officially designated Gershkovitz as wrongfully detained. The State Department designation shifts Gershkovitz's case to the Office of the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, a section focused on negotiating for the release of hostages and other Americans classified as wrongfully detained. Officials said the designation was reached with unprecedented... I think National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and Secretary of State Antony Blinken have been very vocal and demanding his release, that he should be returned to the United States. They've also been declarative that he was not a spy, which is obvious to us. And then we need to keep working with them to actually figure out how to get him back. I'm Paul Beckett. I'm the Washington Bureau Chief of the Wall Street Journal. Evan was accredited by the Russian Foreign Ministry to be a journalist there, and that's all he was doing. But given the bogus charges they brought against him and the public statements that they've said, they will go through a trial. Uh, the chances of him being found innocent when he is innocent are extremely slim. So we're looking into a lengthy prison term of up to 20 years unless he will be exchanged for someone in a prisoner's exchange. Some Russian officials already made statements about who could be exchanged for Gershkovich, which makes it clear that they are going to use him as a bargaining chip. It's really very early stages if you think of previous trials. Paul Whelan is probably the best example. He's also charged with espionage, and he's still there. And obviously he was under consideration when Brittany Griner was returned, but um, that didn't work out. Basketball star Brittany Griner now heading home as part of a prisoner swap with Russia. In exchange for Griner, the U.S. released a convicted arms dealer known as the Merchant of Death, Victor Boot. President Biden says she is in good spirits. He also reiterated his administration's commitment to bringing home other wrongfully imprisoned Americans, including retired Marine Paul Whelan, who is still detained in Russia. So, you know, we know that this can be a long time. And I think for the moment, the government, as far as we know, are just uh, trying to figure out how we might shorten that timeline. And we have to wait for that process to unfold rigged as we consider it to be and the Russians have said they want to go through that process before they talk about any kind of prisoner swap. This really isn't just an attack on Evan or even just an attack on the Wall Street Journal. It's an attack on press freedom and I think more largely freedom of expression. It's just deeply unsettling and points to the risk that journalists all around the world are facing now. In recent years, the numbers of killed and jailed journalists have been record high. Uh, in December 2022, when we conducted the most recent prison census, at least 363 journalists were jailed in direct retaliation for their journalism around the world. What is the future of foreign correspondence? And how important is it to be able to get uh, verifiable, trustworthy information about countries that play a very big part in all of our lives? If 
there is great tension at the moment between the US and Russia and the US and China. And yet our reporters are not free to operate in those countries. How do you know the other side? And that's just a huge loss for journalism. Ultimately, it's a huge loss for the world because, you know, ignorance is trouble. Thank you for listening to this special episode by Project Brazen. If you want to write a letter of support to Evan, please visit the Wall Street Journal's website or freegershkovich.com. That's free, G-E-R-S-H-K-O-V-I-C-H.com. It's a website set up by his friends and loved ones. They'll help translate your letter into Russian and get it to Evan in prison. This episode was reported by Neha Wadika with production by Susie Armitage and Megan Dean and sound design by Claire Urban. Finally, we've asked Evan's friends and colleagues to share their own messages for Evan, and we hope that he'll hear them soon. Well, the Russian thing that I would say to him is dirzis, which means hold on, and know that every single person who knows you is doing everything in their power to get you out. But I wanted to say that, first of all, we're not obviously giving up on you. And I want to say I'm very proud of you. So many people have come out to say what you've meant to them, both professionally and personally, and that you've achieved this in 31 years. That's just ridiculously incredible. Hey, Evan, it's Brock. Uh, miss you and thinking a lot about you. This is going to sound generic and lame, but uh, everyone's thinking about you here. Your face is plastered on posters all across campus, in my office, everywhere. Yeah, we we'll miss you and we'll watch you home soon. And hang in there. There's a huge number of people uh, working very hard to uh, bring you home, bring you back to your parents and bring you back to the newsroom. You are an extraordinary young person and you've shown that your whole life. I saw that so many times over the four years that you played soccer for Princeton High School under the most challenging circumstances. And I'm confident in saying, Evan, that, that you're handling this situation as well as you would have handled any situation under a lot of pressure when you were wearing that blue jersey. Stay strong. I know you're the right guy to do that and keep smiling where you can. And I'm really looking forward to giving you a hug one day. And uh, you can't gain weight or lose weight because I have your Uniqlo pants that you just had tailored. So don't screw that up. In the 1950s, spy agencies like the CIA paid artists, writers, and intellectuals to fight the cultural Cold War. Not All Propaganda is Art is a new miniseries from me, Benjamin Walker, host of the Theory of Everything podcast. It's a story about three writers who got caught up in the cultural Cold War, both as collaborators and as targets. It's also a story about the propaganda that made the world we live in today. Find Not All Propaganda is Art on the Theory of Everything feed wherever you get your podcasts.